As I said, we'll go ahead and get into uh, the preaching this evening. Topic this evening, of course, will be upon the fifth piece of armor found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. So if you turn there, we'll begin looking at this this evening. And let us read, we'll read all of verse 17, but we're only going to take a portion of it. Chapter 6 and verse 17. He says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So our topic this evening is the helmet of salvation. And so we take this up now as the fifth piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. Now you can see first that this piece of armor is linked to the previous piece, which was of course by faith, and we'll show you that here in just a moment, but he does use the conjunction there in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation. So we do see that it is linked together. The reason I say that also, look over in uh, Hebrews. Remember this morning we gave the definition of faith. It's found in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And there we read, Now faith is the substance of things, and there's the term, hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we do see that faith and hope then are linked together. And very well then, if we are to take the shield of faith, wherewith we are to uh, quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, let's not forget then to take the helmet of salvation. Also, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. We read there, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. There he used a little bit different terminology in regards to some of this. But there we do see again faith and hope, at least in some, piece, uh, some sense, uh, pieced together. So the armor that we're going to be looking at tonight deals then with hope. The helmet of hope or the helmet of salvation. And we're going to divide this up into three areas. First of all, what is hope? And then we'll look at the helmet, that is how it's used in the metaphor listed here. And then thirdly, the hope of salvation then as a helmet. Well, let's go to the first thing, and that is, what is hope? Can we define, at least biblically or at least in our own thoughts, what is the definition of hope? Just as we look this morning to the Word of God to find the definition of faith, again, I think we can come back to the Word of God and we can come up with at least a very working definition of the idea of hope. Hope is that which looks forward with expectation to things to come. In other words, it hasn't arrived yet, but with hope, we look for it to come. For instance, the book of Romans, chapter 8. It should have already clicked in your head as we're dealing with the idea of hope. And we have went through some of this as we were expounding through the book of Romans. And as you remember, we have stopped in chapter 8 and hope to get back to that very soon. But in verse 25, he uses the idea here. He says, But if we hope... For that we see not, then do we with patience, notice, wait for it. In other words, it hasn't arrived yet, but with long-suffering, with patience, with perseverance, we wait for whatever it is that is to arrive. Now, of course, the thing that he's talking about here will be some of the subject that we'll be looking at here this evening as well. So the very nature, then, of hope is that which is expecting something good. 
I remember when my children were smaller and they were waiting for Daddy to come home from work, they would all be gathered around waiting for the particular time that I would come home. And, of course, they were expecting it. And they, of course, hoped that I would. And that's the idea. So you children especially here this uh, evening would know something of what I'm talking about when it's time for Daddy to come home. You're waiting for that time. You're expecting it. And so you're hoping that your father will show up. And that's the idea here. That the hope in the Bible is this which always looks forward. It has the nature of looking forward. And that, again, is biblical hope. Now, it's linked to faith, and then by that I mean saving faith, because without faith there could be no hope, no looking to the future that is for the promise. It takes faith, you see, to realize the expectation of the thing that is coming. It is hope, and I, and I say this carefully, it's hope that, ha, that anxiously looks forward to that which is to come. Now, hope in and of itself, obviously, is a grace from God. It is a grace just like faith is. It's a grace like the other spirits or the other uh, pieces of the spiritual warfare that we fight. This, too, is from God. And it's obtained pretty much the same way as faith is. It is attained by coming to the things of God and believing and trusting in these things. But it is from God. Look in uh, he, Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. Romans, the 15th chapter and verse 13. He says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Here again we see some of the uh, things that link together with uh, hope. One of them, of course, is faith, as he mentions there, but also joy and peace. We're not sadly looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus, is what hope really centers upon. We are joyfully looking and knowing that he shall return because the Bible itself has told us very plainly that he is. And so, but the point of that is, where does faith come from? It is something that God works into the hearts of his people. And again, notice how often when we look at the biblical doctrine of, faith, of hope in the scripture, that faith always seems to be showing up. So don't separate faith from hope or hope from faith. But the main thing is that it is a grace which comes from God and it is the special gift in particular of the Holy Spirit. As we saw back there in Romans 15, verse 13, it's the Holy Spirit that works this through us. He's the agent, as it were, who works hope in us. Now, just as faith has an object, so does hope. And uh, it would be, obviously, anything that was good. I don't, if I was a man and I had done a, uh, committed a capital crime and I knew that my uh, date to have my head chopped off or to be electrocuted would be May the 6th, I wouldn't be sitting in my cell with expectation of hope and joy waiting for that to take place. No, I would, I would have a fearfulness about it. Well, that's the idea here. Hope, though, in the truest sense, has this uh, expectation of something that is good, something that is wholesome, and good expectations, that is, of what's to take place in the future. Look over in First Peter. I'm having you turn to a lot of this just to get you all primed up for what we're going to be saying tonight. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, Wherefore, and we've already talked about this aspect, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and notice, and hope to the end for the grace 
that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're honing this down even closer. What is hope? Well, hope is something that has an expectation for something to come. Secondly, it is something that's wrought by God. Thirdly, it is something that it, it looks forward to something that is good. And then in this part here, we see in particular that good will be none other than the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So something that has already taken place, we don't hope for. But something that is future is what we look forward to. Romans 8 again and verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. That is, well, that which is present. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. So we see the example then of Scripture over and over again, the idea of what saving hope, what the grace of hope is. Let me give you an example of this, from, at least from the Scripture. And that, of course, is with faith for Abraham. Look back in Romans chapter 4 again, and notice verse 18. He says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. You remember this morning we talked about Abraham and the idea of his faith. And that he had such faith that he believed that even if his son Isaac, who the seed was going to come through, even if he was dead, that God was going to fulfill that promise in order to, and will raise up his son in order to do that. Well, before this very thing took place, God had promised to Abraham the fact that he was going to make of him uh, a mighty nation through his seed. And, of course, he knew that that seed would be through Isaac and then on even unto the Lord Jesus himself. And that's the context of verse 18. Remember we said in this morning that that seed was going to be the one who was going to bring in justification both for the Jew and for the Gentile. That is what Abraham looked forward to. And the Bible says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness when he believed that. Well, in all of that, though, there was a hope that was set before Abraham, and that's what he means there in verse 18. Who against hope, that is, he recognized he was old, he recognized his wife was old, and yet he still believed that God was going to fulfill his promise in which he gave him that he would make a mighty nation out of him. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. Now, it wasn't a present reality with Abraham. In fact, you remember what his name is. His name means the father of many nations. And here he was, sonless through Sarah. And so, the idea here that faith brings forth then the, the true hope that we need to have. It gives us the power, as it were, to look forward. Uh, we have a farmer in here, and he knows that as he goes out and he sows during the springtime that he looks forward to the harvest time that the things that he has planted will come up again that's a biblical example first corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10 so you sow in hope don't you recognizing that when i lay the seed down god and all of his promises and all of his grace and the way that he works through the laws that he's established in nature that those seeds will grow and there will be a harvest come harvest day and thus he hopes for that. There is an expectation of something that is good. Now, also, when it comes to the idea of hope, I said that it had an object. 
And that object is none other than, just as faith, Jesus Christ Himself. And it's not just the consummation of all the events of the earth. That's true. That's going to take place. But it's because of the person who will bring that to pass. And that it is none other than Jesus Himself. First Timothy. And then we'll get out of all the teaching of this and begin to look at it from the text face. First Timothy 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Who is our hope? It's Christ. Yes, it's Christ at His coming, no doubt. We don't want to take away from that. But it's the person who is to come that makes us so joyous. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, that in a nutshell then is what hope is. It is the expectation of something good. And that something is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know it's true because we read it in Scripture. And because we do have faith then that the Bible is true and that He says He will come again, then you and I then can have hope that He's coming. And He then is to us our blessed hope. Well, as I said, that's hope uh, 101 in a nutshell. So now let's look at this as far as the text itself is concerned. You notice here He says, Take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet was a piece of armor used for the protecting of the head. If you go out and play football, well, if you were to do it professionally or at least in college or in high school, you would wear a helmet in order to protect your head. If you were joining the military, one of the things, items that they would hand out to you before you went out on the field would be a steel, I suppose they're steel, steel helmets. And normally, the helmets, even of Paul's day, were made of some kind of metal, sometimes brass, sometimes iron. Even gold was some of the use, uh, things used to make it. Skins also were used to make helmets. And the purpose, then, of a helmet is to protect the head. Remember we said that the shield would defect some of the fiery darts that Satan comes about and throws at us? Well, the helmet would be the thing... That would stop, as it were, the hard knocks that would come from the blows towards the head. It would become then the cushion for the blows. Because that's what the helmet is. Now, what is the helmet of salvation or the hope of salvation? And that's where we come. Now, how did I say that it was the hope? You say, well, how did you get from salvation to hope? Well, you remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. That's where we picked that up if you were listening. He says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of love, faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what is all of this then? What is the helmet of salvation? Well, it is the hope of salvation. Now, you'll notice here that the salvation in that text in First Thessalonians is something that is future. It's not speaking of the initial salvation that you and I jump into at the moment that we're saved or we're justified before God. But there is also in our salvation a final salvation. There is a salvation that will take place at the very end. Let me give you a couple examples of it, or at least one example. Look over in Romans again, chapter 13 and verse 11. Paul, as he 
he's winding down the thoughts of these uh, practical applications to the believers here. He tells us in chapter 13 and verse 11, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. See, Paul's making the distinction here between the salvation that we come into when we first believe the gospel, that we're saved, and we are saved eternally. Uh, All our sins, past, present, and future, are totally and absolutely pardoned. God remembers those things no more as far as His justice and His court is concerned. That's the initial salvation that you and I enter into when we repent and we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul also speaks of a salvation that is also future. And this is the one he's dealing with here in verse 11. There is no way that the Apostle Paul can be speaking here, if any kind of language means anything, of something that took place to them in the past, when God justified them or imputed them righteous when they believed. This is dealing with something in the future. Because notice again, and that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. I was saved in 1978, and so whatever that equals, what is that, 30 years or so? 30 years ago, my it's, I was... I entered into this relationship of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, 30 years later, I am closer to that final salvation that is to come upon me. Just as you are. However long ago it was that you truly believed in Christ and you were set on that narrow way, there really is an end to this narrow way. And it's the celestial city. And the Bible teaches us that as time goes on, we are getting closer to that end. And Paul warns us here. He says, now you need to wake up. You need to realize that there is an ending to all of this. There is a final salvation. And it's even nearer than when you first believed. So awake now, he says. Wake up to the fact that there is something coming. There is an end to this. So we have a piece of armor then, brethren, that's going to help us in this warfare against Satan and this idea of looking forward to the end that is to come. Now, this piece of armor causes us then to look to the future aspect of our salvation with assurance that God will bring it all to pass. Have you ever wondered if you're going to hold out to the end? Have you ever wondered, yeah, you know, I believed uh, 30 years ago and I do see my life making those changes and I'm moving towards holiness. And, and do you ever wonder, though, is there, will I finish? I may have 30 more years left. I'm 50, I'll be 80. If I have 30 more years left in this life, will I hold out? Will what God has begun back in 1978, yea, even before all eternity, if we want to think of it in that way, but temporally and in time, as a transient act, as the big boys say, if he started that back in 1978, will I be assured that he will complete it at the last day? How can I do so? Well, this is where all this aspect comes in at. Brethren, we are to put on the helmet of salvation, the hope 
that God will see me through that. Despite what Satan throws across in my road, despite all the potholes that are in Topeka, so to speak, I am going to plow through and I'm going to make it unto the end. Why? Because I have the promise that he will do so. Look on uh, Philippians, just the bottom of, well, my Bible, it's the bottom of my page. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident, Paul says. In other words, being assured, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And that's why I said this piece of armor causes us to look forward to the future, the future aspect of the end of our salvation, with the assurance that God will bring it all to pass. Can you imagine what it would be like to our conscience and to our souls and to our spirits as we're walking along towards the celestial city without any promise whatsoever that I will have an end when I get there? That I will even make it there? How would that make me work? How would that keep me going? I would be despondent at the very... I would be at the slough of despond, or the slough of despond. Everybody pronounces that term in Pilgrim's Progress. That's where we'd end up, wouldn't it? We would be down in the dumps. We'd be in the swamps of depression because we don't have a promise to know whether I would hold out to the end or not. By the way, the fifth point of Calvinism is perseverance of the saints. That is, we believe we will live holy unto the end. Not only will we not lose our salvation, that's certainly part of it, but God will see that we move on till the end. You see, it's a promise. Now, how can I be so assured of that? Well, again, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident, Paul says, of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you He's not even talking about himself. He's talking about others who have experienced the grace of God in their lives. The gospel. Notice verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, he says. But he is so confident of the things that he saw in them. That God truly was at work. And if he was at work, he says, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's not himself. He's talking about others. And brethren, then how assured then can we be? But such a promise as this. What is this all relating to? It's the final aspect of our deliverance from the chains of sin. Remember back when we were first converted or before we were converted, what were we? We were under the bondage of sin, wasn't we? Sin reigned. Sin was the master. Sin was the king. But of course, when salvation came, uh, came, that king was dethroned and Christ was put upon the throne, so to speak, and we obey him. But there were still some remnants of that old master around, wasn't there? And we call that what? Indwelling sin. That's the things that are still there. Those are the things. That's the thing that stirs us up to disbelieve these promises. It's the things that causes me to lust or it causes me to covet or it causes me to do this and that that are contrary to God's law. Even when I would do good, Paul says, sin is present with me. There still is that remaining corruption that I have to deal with. And Paul says, there's a day coming 
that even those things will be gone. Uh, Thomas Goodwin called them his croaking toads. He was on his deathbed and he said he'd never have to hear those croaking toads again. He would never hear or know or experience the, the sin that remained within his heart still rising up to cause him to be disobedient to God. Those croaking toads would no longer be around. I could understand some of that, what he meant. I remember at my bedroom when I was growing up, for some reason, all the crickets in the country gathered at my window. And underneath, you heard this loud cricketing noise, and it just kept you awake all night long. And it was, they were just singing to me, apparently, and no one else. Well, the croaking toad would be the same way. It'd be so loud and so continual and so constant, you couldn't rest, you couldn't sleep. And Thomas Gooden was saying, that's what indwelling sin is like. It's outside your bedroom window. It's making all that racket. And it's giving you no rest. But there will be a day when those croaking toads are gone. When every last cricket will be gathered up from under my bedroom window and taken away. Now, we look forward to that day, don't we? In fact, not only us, but the whole creation looks forward to the day that every croaking toad, every remnant of every frog is completely gone. In Romans 8, again, Paul explaining that there is an ant. Uh, Romans 8, I speak of animals and here they come. Uh, Romans 8 gives us that very thing. Notice in verse 23. Well, let me begin in verse 18 because that's really where he starts and we're going to have to get into this sometime because we have to get back to this passage. But he says, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, this is his hope. For the earnest expectation, there's hope, of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. Even the creation itself is waiting for this great big change that's going to take place. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, there he's saying when all this takes place, not only will we experience the glorious liberty of the children, we, but the creation itself, this fallen world that Adam plunged everything and everybody into sin. He says, for we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, notice, groan within ourselves. What do we do? We're waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. When all of this will be over. And that, brethren is what we're looking forward to. It is the end when God will bring full glory. He will bring the complete end of what was the intention of our full and free salvation in Jesus Christ. Both body and soul redeemed from all corruptions that sin has caused. Remember that we have spoken before that sin has caused death. Spiritual death and physical death. Spiritual death, of course, we were born again 
and we became alive. We were made alive again in the new birth. Yet we still die, don't we? The physical part of us will die. The body still goes back to the dust, which again is part of the curse, according to Genesis. But you see, Christ has redeemed us even from the curse, even of this aspect of sin. And there will be a day when He will raise our corrupted bodies out of the earth and make them incorruptible. And as the Scripture says, we will be forever then with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with some length with this very thing. The resurrection, which of course is the end of all things. We're not waiting for some millennium, we're waiting for the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, and verse, beginning in verse 51. Behold, Paul says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And based on that, then, is the practical exhortation. Get busy. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, brethren, what we're waiting for is the final adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. That's the end salvation. That when we first believed is now drawing even nearer. Now, this is the helmet of salvation, remember. This is the hope. Now, how does this protect us? Remember we said that it, we're to take the helmet of salvation, and this helmet and the figure that he's using here, the imagery is that we put on this hope that God will see us through, that what he has begun at the beginning, that he will complete all the way to the very end. Well... Here's how it helps us. If we are fully persuaded, brethren, that God has surely predestinated the outcome of all of this, no matter what fights we have, no matter what stumbling blocks that come our way, He has assured us that we, brethren, are more than conquerors through Him that has loved us. That's a good hope, isn't it? We can get up tomorrow... And go to work, go to our places, go to our families, wherever we see the trials and the adversities. And there we can begin again anew, knowing that we are more than conquerors through Him that has loved us. When Satan casts those doubts in our minds, we need to remember this piece of armor. This is the piece of armor that protects the head. And when we perhaps, because of indwelling sin because of those croaking toads within us we begin to lose hope of what God has promised us brethren we need to realize that the promises of God are sure and firm just as his covenant is that's our whole salvation David said you know it may not be with so with my house in other words he knew that there were those in his house who were not converted and never would be he says I know it's it's not so with my house, but God has made a covenant with me. 
that stands sure and firm. And it's well ordered in all things. There's no mistakes. There's no half ways with God. He is going to take it forward. What he has promised that he will do. And when Satan comes and he begins to put that despondency upon us, despondency upon us, which, of course, is one of his favorite weapons, by the way, he would love to have the brethren cast down. He would love to have the brethren doubting the outcome even of our own salvation. He's the one who causes these anxieties about the future. Well, brethren, we need then to put on the helmet of salvation. Take up our hope, which is looking forward to that blissful future time with God that He has in store for His people. You know, the thing about it is, if we really, really are thinking biblically and scripturally and spiritually, we would see, according to Ephesians chapter 2, if we were to awaken up, and as Elisha told, uh, God asked Elisha, or Elisha asked God to open the eyes of his servant, and he saw all those uh, angels about him around the hill that were going to protect him. If God was to open up our spiritual eyes this evening and we were to wake up, you know where we would be looking? Where would we be at? If we had our spiritual eyes opened at this very moment and I was to look around, what do you think I would see? Well, I would see what he tells us in verse 6 of Ephesians 2. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what I would see. If I was like Elisha's servant and God was to draw back the veil, I would be seated, see myself seated with all the saints, all the elect of all ages, seated with Christ Jesus. Because we can be so sure of this fact. In fact, uh, we were recently talking about justification and the, uh, the fact that there is a, what we would call uh, justification from all eternity in a, real, in a sense as far as God is concerned, not temporally. We are condemned and all that kind of thing personally. But there is a reality to the fact that as far as God is concerned, we've all been glorified. From the very moment... Uh, if you want to speak loosely in the covenant here. And the very moment when God conceived in His mind in regards to His people, the election and all of that stuff in the end, as far as God's mind who knew from the, the, the beginning to the end that all of this was already taken care of. And that's why Paul can say, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. Have you been glorified yet? You don't look like it to me. Do I look like I've been glorified to you? Nope. But in God's eye, in God's mind, as an imminent act, as the big boys call it, it's already done. From the moment it was conceived in his mind, his people were already there in heaven with him. And that's why it could be said of Jesus in Proverbs 8, that he re his delight was in the sons of men. Yeah, even before the world began. See, these are the kind of things, brethren, we need to take for granted in our walk. You say, boy, those are high and lofty doctrines. Well, those are the high and lofty doctrines that get us through this mess. That get us to continue on and to be faithful. 
So we're to believe and trust that God's Word is sure and that there is a future for us. And as far as God is concerned, it's already there. If we would again tear away the scales from our eyes, we would be seeing ourselves seated at God's right hand, ever enjoying this. Paul says, For I reckon, that is, he counts it true, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You got a hard day? Then you need to reckon that the sufferings of this present time won't make a bit of difference in the day to come. There's nothing in compared to God's glory for us. That's why he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at not at things which are seen, but on things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen, are eternal. Do you say yourself, brethren, being raised up together with Christ and seated together with Him in heavenly places? If you are a believer in Christ, you can rightly say it's true. Isn't that great? This is what keeps us going. This is our hope that is based on the truths and the realities of Scripture. Well, let me give some directions to this and some observations. First of all, uh, directions and we need to strengthen our hope. How do we do that? Well, we need to study the promises of God. Verses just as that are the things that keep us going and, 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 and builds up our faith and as well as builds up our, our hope. Notice Romans 15 and verse 4. For what sort of things were written aforetime, that is in the Old Testament, were written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Where do they come from? Even from the Old Covenant Testament. Because that's what, that was what was written at that time, isn't it? So even from the Old Testament, brethren, we can draw things that will give us patience and comfort so that we might have hope. Secondly, pray for hope. If it's like a grace, and it is, just like any other grace we would pray for, then we ought to pray that our hope would be made more clear to us. Labor to look past the experiences that God has placed us in. And also think about the experiences that He's got us through. And all of this helps us. Paul tells us again in Romans 5 and verse 4, and patience, or actually, yeah, verse 4, and patience and experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How does he work hope in us? Through the things of patience and experience. You know, if you don't have some serious trials, your hope won't be what it ought to be. It sounds almost begging for trouble, doesn't it? But in reality, without those trials and adversities and sorrows and, and hard times, our faith won't be as secure as it ought to be. Now, you would think those would be the things that would throw our hope off. But Paul says, no, patience and experience and experience hope. They build it, not destroy it, at least in the elect. Then we are fourthly to stir up ourselves with every lawful means to exercise our hope. We saw that earlier in First Timothy or First Peter, excuse me, 
in chapter 1 and verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle or behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And then to... As we've saw from Romans, the, the fact that the second coming is the blessed hope to his people. Secondly, for those here this evening who are lost, I assure you, without God, you, there is, you are without hope. That's what Ephesians tells us back in chapter 2 and verse 12. That at that time, ye, that is you believers now who were Gentiles, are Gentiles, ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You need to recognize that's where you're at, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Your hope and your hope alone as a sinner lies in what Christ has accomplished. It lies in Him being crucified for sinners and the mercy that He has in salvation. Don't let anyone think here this evening that heaven is theirs without Christ. The height of arrogancy to believe that you could have heaven apart from the work of Christ. And there are many who think that. But let me tell you tonight, it is not true. There would be no heaven without Jesus Christ. So you need to lay down your sins and seek salvation through Jesus Christ, who does abound in grace and in mercy. And Christian, let me encourage you again. When hard times come, recognize, first of all, this is what God uses to strengthen our hope, to make hope real to us. And in these experiences, we grow and gain in these things. That's why we are to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Because we know the end of them. It brings us nearer to that completed salvation that is ours, that God has begun in us and will be faithful even unto the end.